afterward. Well, Merry Christmas. Thank you. Let's try that again. Merry Christmas. As you're making your way back to your seats, we'll be in John chapter 16. John chapter 16. No worries. You too. Okay, see you this evening. Bye-bye. <laughs> John chapter 16. Before we start the service this morning, I'd like, um, we've had a number of people either in the hospital for surgery or going into to the hospital for surgery. And so if you've been in the hospital for a surgery or you're going into the hospital, uh, if you would please stand, we'd like to pray over you. I know on Tuesday, Jerry's going in uh, for surgery and I'd like to pray for him. I know Brother Ronald's been in surgery um, and so we'd like to pray. Anyone that's been in the hospital uh, or going into the hospital for surgery, if you'd stand and then we'd gather around those and let's uh, pray, pray for those as they uh, recover and will continue to recover. So if you'd stand and then we'll gather around those uh, that, that would like prayer. Well, let me pray for us uh, and for them this morning. God, I'm grateful that we uh, can gather in this place and cry out to you and you say in your word that you're the great healer, you're the great physician. And so God, I uh, I continue to pray for those uh, who have been in, in surgery and are coming out and are continuing to heal. I pray for those that are going into surgery this coming week. I uh, pray for all those who are still uh, sick and struggling, God. I pray that you, uh, through your righteous right hand, would heal them, God. And you would give wisdom and discernment to the doctors uh, as they go into surgery and continue to uh, care for them. And God, I, I pray that at, at the end of all of it, God, that uh, through the recovery process, God, that people wouldn't look to the doctors to give them honor and glory, but they would turn back to you. Um, because, God, we know that you hold life in your hand. And so uh, we thank you for life, and we thank you for giving us life and protecting our lives. And I, I pray for those um, that, God, that uh, this week, I think of Jerry, that as he goes into surgery on Tuesday, I, I pray for him. I pray, uh, God, that he'd come out and would continue to give you all the honor and praise and glory. Lead us and guide us this morning in our worship service. We pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. We'll be in John chapter 16 this morning. Uh, we are coming. Uh, we'll conclude this evening at our Christmas Eve candlelight service, uh, lighting the last candle. That's the Christ candle as a remembrance that Christ has come. And so this morning, though, before we get there, as we come to celebrate uh, Christ coming to us this evening, I want to talk about the, the fourth candle, joy. And so this is the joyous season, and yet uh, for so many of us, uh, myself included, uh, it's been a struggle. It's been a season of struggle. I can't really say it's been a season of joy. And so for me this week, when I've been studying this passage, it, it hasn't been hard to study mentally it's been very difficult to study emotionally for this passage. Now, I know us as the church, that's uh, one of the beauties here of Powell's Chapel, of getting to be the pastor here at Powell's Chapel. Now, I, I know the struggle that we're all in, the sorrow that we're all in. And so this week, I was like, God, of all the times to teach, please, God, let me teach on something else. And I just felt like the Lord continued to say, no, teach on joy. 
I was like, okay, I'll be obedient to you. So God, you're going to have to come through. And so we know that we're celebrating Advent. The, Advent. the word Advent means the arrival of, the anticipation of. And so this morning, we anticipate joy, amen? Don't we all long for joy? And yet, what do we do in these seasons where joy seems to be at the tip of our fingertips where we can't get to? And we can't hold on to it very long. If, you've, if you're walking on the planet, you know that joy can come in moments, but they're not long-lasting, are they? And so for me and my heart, and I pray for your heart, there's this longing, there's this expectation for all of us that there's going to be this moment for us that we hold on to joy. And I don't just mean the afterlife. I know when we get into heaven, there's going to be continuous amounts of joy. But Jesus told us that we will have joy here, right? And so how do we reconcile these two things? Jesus tells us in this passage about joy. You know, the word joy means the feeling of a great pleasure or happiness. As I was studying this week, thinking about Christmas, and thinking about what Christmas really means, we only have Christmas because of sorrow. I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer, but when I began to sit and study the idea of Christmas, the idea of Christmas comes out of a deep place of sorrow. The sorrow is that I'm a wretched sinner that needs a holy God to redeem me. And so Christmas for me ought to remind me of the great sorrow that I live in as a sinner. Like Christmas for unbelievers, it's, it's got to be more than just some gifts under a tree. And yet we've made Christmas this commercialized thing that's taken away from the sorrow what Christmas is really all about. I promise I'll get to joy. Just hang on with me. But I've got to talk to us this morning about sorrow. Because I think we live in this world that says, hey, just get to the joy, just get to the joy, just get to the joy. And we run from sorrow, do we not? We run as fast as we can from pain from sorrow, from agony. And yet Jesus is going to tell us in this passage to do something with our sorrow. And the the world tells us, hey, don't worry about being sad. Don't worry about being hurt. Don't worry about the pain. Just go after the next thing. And so we get in this rat race of chasing joy. Right? Is, Is that not what happens? Like, we're so longing for joy, we'll at all costs do anything to find those momentary places of of pleasure. And Satan dupes us to think it's joy. Worldly pleasure can often mask itself like joy. Because if we took a poll and we went out uh, today to the avenue and took a poll of everyone at the poll, and we said, uh, do you know Christ? And they'd say no. Then I'd ask the question, do you have joy? They'd say yes, would they not? Like you go into Christmas parties, there's joy at Christmas parties. But I wonder what's really going on internally in the soul. Because we live in a world that says enough is not enough. Once we get to that next thing that we think is going to bring us joy, the next car, the next house, the next job, the next promotion, the next 
what? That's never satisfying enough because it's not true joy. And yet Jesus tells us to do something. You see, Proverbs says this. Hope or joy deferred makes the heart sick. But a desire filled is a tree of life. Joy comes from sorrow. You see, joy is going to be birthed out of sorrow. And I know that seems like an oxymoron. But if we're ever going to experience true joy, we must experience true sorrow. And so my first point is this. Our constant companion. We see that in the passage. Here Jesus is talking to his uh, beloved disciples. It's moments before he's about to go to the upper room. It's moments before he's about to die. And so he's beginning to tell his disciples about the death he's going to live. And they get really confused. But think about the sorrow they must have been in. Here's the man they've been walking with for three years. The savior of the world, their best friend, their best companion. He begins to tell them he's going to die. And then in moments later, he's going to die. Can you imagine the sorrow those 11 men felt? Can you imagine the world around them that this Savior who came to redeem them felt when Jesus is hanging on a cross? Because they had this thing for Jesus that Jesus was going to conquer Rome. Like in their mind, Jesus was going to be the king of kings and he was going to take over Rome and set it all back into motion the way it was meant to be. And yet in this moment, here's the savior of the world, the king of kings on a tree. And I wonder the sorrow they felt that Friday when they looked at the savior and they can't, uh, they can't take together and put together that he's going to redeem all things as he's dying. The sorrow that they must have felt. And this is what Jesus tells them moments before he dies. In John 16. He says, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, you will see me. If that's not a confusing statement to begin with, I don't know what is. And so the disciples, some of the disciples said to one another, what is he talking about? What is he saying to us? A little while you'll not see me, and again a little while you will see me. And it's because I'm going to up to the Father. And so they're saying, what does this, he even mean, a little while? Highlight that in your Bible. He says this many times, a little while. And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while? And you will not see me. And again, a little while, you will see me. Truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you. You will weep and you will lament. But the world will rejoice. He's saying you're going to be sorrowful. You're going to hurt. You're going to have agony. You're going to lament as the world around you rejoices. Is that not true for us this morning, church? I pray that we're a church that laments. We ought to be lamenting every day as the world rejoices. It's the world rejoicing that's going to send them to hell. But it's our lamentation over that that will compel us to go with the gospel. Do we lament, church? 
do we have sorrow, church? God says you have to have both. And so we can't start with joy. He starts what? With sorrow. Our closest companion must be sorrow. Our constant companion will be sorrow. If we ever want to get to joy, a little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will be turned into joy. You see, the way to joy is the avenue of sorrow. And yet the world tells us the avenue to joy is pleasure. The avenue to joy is stuff. The avenue to joy are toys. The avenue to joy are you fill in the blank. But God says in his word here through Jesus, the avenue to joy is what? Sorrow. Sorrow. And then he gives the example. Verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she is no longer remembers the anguish or the sorrow for joy that a human being is being born into the world. Now, I can remember that. There's two pictures that will come up on the screen. The first one is Tennyson. The second one is Cedar. I know they look identical, but I promise they're two different children. And I can remember those nine months and I can't tell you how many times that Jenny would be so angry at me because of the anguish she was going through. She'd blame it on me. I'm like, girl, it takes two of us. She's not here today, so I can say this. But I, I remember nights that she'd wake me up in the middle of the night and she'd be sick to her stomach because of what that, whatever happens in a woman and she'd be, be blaming it on me. Like, go get me some crackers. I'm like, dag, how many crackers are you going to eat? But that whole nine months, the anguish, the, the sorrow, the anger of it all. And by God's grace and wisdom and knowledge, we, she didn't give natural birth. She had a, a C-section, but that was still an anguishing time for her. Like, I, I remember being in the room as they're, they're delivering Tennyson first and Cedar, they're almost identical to two experiences. And I remember the pain on her face. I remember the anguish on her face. But I'll never forget that moment of joy. When behind the curtain, this little baby has got no voice, got no things, and all of a sudden it begins to burst out with crying. The tears of joy from... Jenny, the tears of joy for me, I, I will never forget it. But that nine months of anguish. But I didn't remember those moments. I didn't remember nine months, the moment I held Tennyson and held Cedar in my arms. That wasn't what I was thinking about. All I had was joy. And if I'm honest, I was terrified. Like, oh no. Like, this thing is fragile. But I remember the joy. I remember sitting holding it, thinking all the stories that are going to come. All the moments that I get to participate in with 
Tennyson and Cedar and the joy of my heart. And even today, when I hold Tennyson and hold Cedar, even this morning holding them during worship, I was thinking, man, I can't wait for the joy when he's singing with me. Like it takes away from his bad attitude this morning. But the joy of thinking, man, one day, God, one day these two children you've given to me, I pray that they rejoice in you always, takes away all the anguish, does it not? If you're a mom or your dad, you get it. Do we not, if you're a parent this morning, you get that passage where, when he says in verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow. Amen, ladies? Dudes, we got no clue. Right? But is it not true that she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being is being born into the world? Here's what a great writer says about joy and sorrow. Henry Nouwen, Henry Nouwen was a great philosopher, a great preacher. And he gave his life, uh, uh, early in his life, he was becoming this superstar in the Christian world. And his ego began to swell, and he just knew that his ego would outtake him, and it wouldn't be good for his heart. And so he, he gave the rest of his life to mentally handicapped people in Toronto. He stayed there till the day he died. And you talk about a man that knew sorrow. I don't know if you've ever been around mentally handicapped people, but there's some joy and there's some sorrow, is there not? And so Henry now is writing from this place in Toronto and says this about joy and sorrow. Joy and sorrow are never separated. When our hearts rejoice at a spectacular view, we may miss our friends who cannot see it. Is that not true? You've ever seen something, you're like, man, I just wish blank was here. That's sorrow. Like, there's been moments that I'll be on a trip and Jenny will be at home and I just think, man, that is beautiful. Oh, she's not here. The sorrow. Who cannot see it. And we are overwhelmed with grief. We may discover what true friendship is all about. Joy is hidden in sorrow. And sorrow and joy. If we try to avoid sorrow at all costs, we may never taste joy. And if we are suspicious of ecstasy, agony can never reach us either. Joy and sorrow are the parents of our, of our spiritual growth. Do you get that? Joy and sorrow are the thing that... that that, that has to occur in us for us to grow on our intimacy with the Lord. And yet what is so true for me, I believe is so true for us. We hate sorrow. And yet we long for deep communion with God, do we not? And yet if we hate sorrow, we'll never get to what we long for because sorrow is going to get us to what our intimacy with God desires. How do we know that to be true? Here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping may tarry for the night, but what? Joy comes in the morning. We cannot have the morning if we do not have the night. What the psalmist is saying, we have to have those dark places in our lives if we're ever going to see the light shine through. That's what the psalmist is saying. And yet I and you want to avoid the dark at all costs. Amen? 
And yet the psalmist says, no, that's impossible. The only way to get to the morning is through the evening. One writer said it this way, the dark place of the soul is where joy is found. Yet we have two perfect examples of this. What does it look like for a man to, to, to run after the world, to run away from sorrow? That's Solomon. Right? Solomon had it all. And then he had some too much. I mean, I have one wife. I don't need 700. That's a bit too much. But here's Solomon. He had all of it, everything at his disposal to give him joy to give him happiness, to give him fulfillment. Did he not? The richest, wisest man in the world is what the Bible says about him. And what does he say to us at the end of his life? After he's done it all and had it all and had it all at his fingertips, all at his disposal to find joy, to find happiness, what does he say? It's all meaningless. The world is all meaningless. And yet, at the end, I'll quote another passage that he says. And yet we have another example, Jesus. So we have this man, Solomon, who had it all. And then we have Jesus who gave all of it up. He was in heaven with the Father. That's what Christmas is about. Christmas is about Jesus pulling on skin in the form of a baby to give all of heaven up to be in a manger. Could you imagine going through a throne room to a manger in the blink of an eye? That's what Jesus did. At the moment of time, Jesus is being screamed at and worshipped. Holy, 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 it tells us in Revelation. And then in a moment, he hears some sheep and donkey. That's what Jesus gave up. So he gave up everything. And yet this is what it says about Jesus in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of what? Sorrow. Acquainted with what? Grief. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was a man of sorrow. Think about all the stories of the, of the Gospels where he'd go out and he would weep over people. He'd weep over Jerusalem. That's a man of sorrow. Like Jesus came out of his sorrow for you and me. That's the whole reason that Jesus came. That he looked at us apart from his Father and his heart broke for us and his sorrow brought him to a manger so that he would die on a cross to save you and I. That's his sorrow. And yet this is what it tells us in Hebrews. He says this, the writer of Hebrews says, look to Jesus, the founder and the what? The perfecter of our faith. Like the one that has your faith in his hands, the one that makes your faith happen, look to him. The man of sorrow, look to him. Who what? For the joy. The sorrow was the joy. Is that not what Hebrews 12 says? who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How did he endure the cross? Through sorrow, but it was triumph with joy. Did, did he not break his heart? Remember, his heart was broken in the garden. 
when he was crying out to his father, was he not in a sorrowful place? It says he cried so hard that blood began to flow from him. That is a sorrowful man. But he did not stand his sorrow. He triumphed with joy because the joy was to give glory to God. So he knew I had to go through sorrow to glorify God. And when I glorify God, that's what gives me my joy. Do we see that? And yet we want to avoid sorrow. And if we avoid sorrow, we'll never bring glory to God. Jesus is our example of that. The founder and perfecter of our faith. A man of sorrow. Looked at the cross with what? Joy. Joy. You see, the cross was never the promise. Like the cross for Jesus wasn't the promise. The, the grief on the cross wasn't the promise. You see, if all we have is the cross, then we're like every other religion, are we not? If, if that's all it is, if our eyes are on the cross and the cross alone and don't go beyond the cross, then we're in trouble. The joy comes in what? The mourning, the resurrection. And so he went through the sorrow of the cross to get to the resurrection of the joy. Do we see that, church? So he walked 33 years of sorrow to have one moment of joy. One moment of joy at the resurrection. But he lived 33 years of sorrow. And yet I want to say, oh God, get me through the sorrow fast. Get me through the sorrow fast. Just get me through the joy. Just get me through the joy. And yet I look at the author and perfecter of my faith who lived a life of sorrow. And I want to hit the accelerator of my sorrow and just get to the joy. Which brings us to this. Where Jesus says this in Revelation. This is our joy and we'll get to how we get to joy. But it comes out of the resurrection. It comes out of the promise that he tells us in Revelation chapter 21. John says this, I heard a loud voice from the throne, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, you and me, the church, the temple. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God through our sorrow is what he's telling us. And then he says this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall no longer be more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. But until then, we must face our sorrow. That's our joy to come. That's the passage. That's our joy to come. There will be a day that our tears are wiped away, that our sorrow is gone, that our hope is fulfilled, that our desires are taken care of. But in that day, we must stay in our sorrow. The writer again says this. Henry Nouwen says this. He's talking about our lives and holding our cups, holding our lives in our hands. And he says this. We all must hold the cup of our lives. 
Is it not true that we want to take this cup of sorrow and, and put it on the coffee table and walk away from it? What the, what the writer Henry is saying, hey, you've got to take your life of sorrow and you've got to hold it and you've got to hold it tightly in your hand. You must take ownership of your life and your life of sorrow. As we grow older and we come, become more fully aware of the many sorrows of life, personal failures, family conflicts, disappointment in work and social life, and the many pains surrounding us on the national and international scene, everything within and around us conspires to make us ignore, avoid, suppress, or simply deny these sorrows. Is that not what the world is doing? Is the world not saying to us, no, that, that, that's not really happening. That pain, that's not really true. That heartache, it's not really true. The, the family conflict isn't really true. Doesn't, doesn't the world, doesn't Satan minimize all that? And Henry said, no, we got to take that and we got to hold that and we got to say, no, these sorrows are true for me. That's what Jesus is telling us in this passage. Hold our sorrows tightly. Don't hold them loosely. If you think about where you have come from and where I have come from, the lives that we live, are they not full of sorrow? I guess I'm the only one. And the world says, look, at the sunny side of life and make the best of it. I hate to say, turn that frown upside down. I think it's the dumbest saying ever. But that's what the world tells us. And we say to ourselves, and hear others say to us, but when we want to drink the cups of our lives, we need to first to hold them, to fully acknowledge what we are living and trusting that by not avoiding, but by befriending our sorrows, we will discover the true joy we are looking for right in the midst of our sorrow. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, let's look sorrow full in the face and accept it. Let us accept our sorrow. If Christ himself accepted his sorrow, he's calling us to accept our sorrow. We live in a fallen, broken world. So all of us in this room have experienced and will continue to experience sorrow. And yet if we avoid the sorrow, we'll never get to the joy that God has for us. Anyone ever experienced that? Like, okay, we'll just bypass what God has taken us through, and then we hope on the other side it's better. But it's never as better, is it? It's only better when we sit in our sorrow. I, I can speak from my own life, my own personal experience. Coming from a fallen, broken family, the majority of my life, from 13 to 30, I just wanted to say, no, that's not really how it happened. Or I, 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 uh, I better not say that one. Um, I, I wanted to, to, to shine a turd. I'll say it that way. Like, oh, it's pretty. No, my, when I look back at my life and the house I grew up in, it was hell on earth. But I wanted to deny that. I wanted to say it wasn't that bad. I wanted to say they did the best they could. But it was the moment I began to embrace the tragedy that my life was that I really began to see God for who he was. Because for the first time in my life, it was through my sorrow that made me dependent on God, not on myself. You see, when I was depending on myself, I was making life worse. Do we not? It was that moment my heart broke from my own story, my own 
sadness, my own shame, that God intervened and showed me joy. Wherever you're at in this thing called life, depressed, anxious, lonely, whatever word that you use, God is using all that for one purpose and one purpose only. It's to bring you joy. I know it sounds crazy. But if you're depressed this morning, I promise God wants to use your depression so that you'll surrender to him so that he can intervene into your depression and be with you in your depression and get you out of it and that you can look behind and say, look what God has done. That's the joy. That's our anxiety. That's all of it together. Is that not what was going on in the disciples that night? Don't you think they were an anxious mess? Like, oh gosh. Don't you think that Friday night when they saw Jesus being taken off the cross, they went to that room and they wept their guts out because their friend was dead? That's sorrow. And yet, when we read through the New Testament, we see glimmers of the sorrow. But the majority of the time in the New Testament, when the cross is talked about, It's talked about with what? Joy. Because it's that moment on the cross. It's that moment of sorrow. It's that moment of angst that God could only do what he could do. And that will save sinners like you and me. It was through God's sorrow that brought him great joy. Is that not true for us, church? And then he says this in verses 23 and 24. And 22 says this, so also you have sorrow now, but I'll see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. Your hearts will be full of joy, and no one will take your joy from you. Amen? How does that happen, church? How does verse 22 happen? It only happens in verse 23 and 24. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that what your joy may be complete. And so what he's saying is, Jesus is our complete joy. And what he's saying in this passage, and what we see throughout the New Testament, we see throughout the Old Testament, our desires must become his desires. And one of his desires is that you and I would face and suffer pain and sorrow. And so when we begin to pray to God, we begin to pray a different prayer. We no longer pray, get me out of the sorrow, but we pray, God, teach me something in the sorrow. You see, it changes our perspective. It changes our reality. That now we're not asking God to get us through it, but we're asking God to be with us in it to get us through it. Amen? That's what he's saying. And so he's saying, for God to be, Jesus to be your complete joy, we begin to ask God things that are on his heart and his desire. So we don't ask God, why me? We ask God, why me? Why, why are you doing this? What do you want me to learn through this sorrow? Not God, get me out of the sorrow. I, I know that from personal experience this past year has been one of the roughest years emotionally and spiritually for me because my desire is to pastor and shepherd you well and yet for whatever reason god has me 
working another full-time job that I can't give my passion and heart fully to you. And so every day for the last year, I've been crying out to God, 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 take me from that place and bring me fully here to Powell's Chapel. And it wasn't until about three weeks ago that God changed my heart in that. And God spoke to me as clear as a bell in my room. I have you at Journey Pure for a purpose. And I'm not going to tell you what that purpose is. Okay. Then I began to change my prayer. If you're not going to change that, God, then God, you're going to have to change me. And I've been crying out to God for the last three weeks, and he still hasn't answered it. But I'm asking God, change my heart in relationship to my full-time job. Because you're not giving me a way out of there yet. You're not opening a door for me to get out of that place to be here full-time. So God, you're going to have to change me. Because you're not changing them, so change me. Which gives me joy in the sorrow. You think I still wake up and I don't have sorrow and I don't have heartache? You're, you're kidding yourself. Every time I ju- turn onto Florence Road and head to my workplace, there's this oppression that comes over me and I have to pray to God, God, take me and walk with me in the sorrow of this place because this is not what I want, but this is what you have for me. Anyone ever been there? And for me, those seasons seem way longer than the moments of joy. But again, I'm asking God, do whatever you have to do in me. Change me. Because if he changes me, I can look back and see all that God did over these last five years of me being at Journey Pure, where I don't desire to be. If my boss hears this message, I might get fired. Maybe this is the answer. Amen. Just kidding. And so I look to Jesus to be my complete joy. And how do we do that? Turn over to a page, John 15, verse 7. How do we have Jesus be our complete joy? How do we have Jesus walk with us in our sorrow? He says it so clearly in verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. How do we abide in his love? How do we abide in him? Verse 10 tells us, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and have abided in his love. All these things I have spoken to you, that what? My joy may be in you, and that what? Your joy may be complete. How do we have complete joy in Jesus? We abide in him. And so, church, I ask you and I call you to this. Are we abiding in him this morning? Here's what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. This is Solomon again. Remember, he had everything at his disposal when he called it meaningless. But yet he says this. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Verse 25. For apart from him, you can eat or whoever 
Can you eat or whoever have enjoyment? Apart from him, can you eat and can you have enjoyment? For the, for the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and what joy? The one who what? Pleases God. Is the one who's gotten what? Joy. But to the sinner, he is given the busyness of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. You see, to have complete joy, we must abide in God and allow God to abide in us. And so I ask you this morning, church, as we're here on this Advent, as we anticipate the arrival of Christ's second return to give us ultimate joy, are you, church, am I, church, am I experiencing joy today? And if I'm not experiencing joy today, the test is this. Am I, are you abiding in Christ? And am I obeying his commandments? Because if I do that, the promise is true. He says, your joy will be in me and your joy will be complete. And so the application this morning is this. Are you finding joy in the Lord? Are you finding joy in the Lord this morning? Do you have joy this morning? And if you answer no this morning, then the next question is no as well. Are you experiencing joy in your time with the Lord? Because if you're experiencing joy of the Lord, then you have to be experiencing joy with your time with the Lord. And so I'd say if you have no joy, you have no experience in your time with the Lord. You are not abiding in God daily. You see, you want to have joy. You want to have true everlasting joy. You must abide in this. You must abide in this. I must abide in this. Before I do anything else in my day, before I read the newspaper, before I check the news, before I check the sports score, before I check anything else, am I getting up and am I abiding in this and letting this what abide in me? You want to have joy? Abide in God's word. You abide in God's word, you abide in him, you abide in him, you have joy, and your joy will be complete. It will be full, as the text says to us. Again, I read this last passage over us. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full as we wait for the coming of christ are you experiencing joy but are you sitting in the sorrow to get to the joy let us pray as i begin to pray if the deacons would come and begin to prepare the lord's table for us God, as we come to this table this morning, I pray that you would remind us of the great sorrow and agony and grief you endured to make this table possible. God, you've been reminding me all week that yes, Christmas is a joyous time. That we do celebrate the coming of your son Jesus to us in 
the form of a baby. And that's what we celebrate here at Christmas. But we must be reminded, Lord Jesus, that there's only one reason your son ever had to come. There's only one reason your son ever had to walk a sinless, perfect life. There's only one reason that your son had to die the death of a criminal. And yes, as joyful as Christmas is, we must face our sorrow that it's my sin, Lord Jesus. It's our sin, Lord Jesus, that your son became obedient to you to pull on skin, to walk a sinless life because I could never do that. And it's because of that, God, because of your son being born in a manger that reconciled me, a sinner, apart from you. And so, yes, as joyful this season is, I pray, God, in my own life. And when I get ready to go to bed tonight, in some small way, you prick my heart with the sorrow. Sin made it all possible to have a Savior. And it's my sin. It's our sin. So God, as we come to this table, we're reminded of the sorrow you face. And yet at the same moment, God, I pray that we'd be reminded of the great joy that your body was broken and your blood was spilled out. That while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies of God, He died for us. I'm grateful. I'm grateful to you. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the greatest gift that I've ever been given. God, I pray for anyone in here this morning. I know there's many in here that we just face sorrow today, God. All that this year has brought, all the heartache that we as a church has experienced this year, God. Let us hold that well. And intervene with joy, Lord Jesus, I pray. Give us joy, Jesus, today. Let us abide in Him to find our joy. Amen.